Hello and welcome to the Juan Juan podcast. If you're enjoying the show, consider signing up for the Patreon. There you get ad-free content, early access, exclusive episodes, and monthly supporter hangouts. You can find it at patreon.com slash the Juan on Juan podcast. If you don't like the subscription-based models, there are other ways of supporting the show that are linked in the description. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode. They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart? Available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Welcome to the One on One podcast with your host. Juan Ayala. So in in the documents and anecdotes of Jung's patients, one of them very clearly at least admits that he was encouraging them to create what effectively would be their own red books. He thought that this was the way to go to engage with your unconscious in a serious and imaginative way where that process becomes this very beautiful like interaction really of, of self-growth. I mean as an artist you're you're constantly one engaging with your unconscious and bringing forth things that it offers you and then things that you're kind of intuiting. There are decisions that you make that are just natural logical steps a lot of those other decisions are made intuitively and so you know what is intuition it's it's basically an inclination from your unconscious to go a certain direction Welcome back to another episode of the Juan on Juan podcast. Make sure to follow the show on social media at the Juan on Juan podcast, tjojp.com. For those that want more of the show, patreon.com slash the Juan on Juan podcast. Make sure to leave a comment, like, thumbs up, whatever, subscribe, five-star review, wherever you're listening. If you're catching this on YouTube, the RSS feed, wherever you may be, make sure to also you can call in. The number is 407-476-4606. 
407-476-4606. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Let me know what you think of the show. Leave whatever, anything. And so today we have MJ Dorian joining us. And I'm very excited for this episode because I've had a synchronistic pack day yesterday, MJ, where it was kind of weird. I want to okay. sh- share those synchronicities with you. But before we get started, cool. can you plug where people can find your work? You've got a great podcast. And I just want to tell you the production is excellent. You've got a great voice. And I love the setup that you got going. So yeah, great job. Keep up the good work. Where can people find you? I'm going to pull up your website here real quick. But Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that very much. I've been enjoying listening to your show lately, and, and it's an honor to be here. So uh, generally, my show, you can find it easiest way to go is go to Spotify and search Creative Codex. That's C-O-D-E-X, Creative Codex. Otherwise, uh, for social media stuff, I'm also on Instagram, the app formerly known as Twitter, and all that stuff under my name, MJ Dorian, D-O-R-I-A-N. And uh, we recently completed a four-part series about Jung and alchemy on the show. And I imagine your listeners will very much enjoy that. So that's on Creative Codex. So for those that don't know you, MJ, this is the first time you come on my show. It's probably not going to be the last time. Can you tell us a little bit about what got you started into... Because I know you you don't just focus on young although you are much more well versed than i am on young and he's one of those kind of guys where you could quite literally spend hours and hours on just singular parts right if you break his work down like the the red book which is really interesting to me and we're, we're going to be talking about that today but he's one of those guys that i still don't know where i stand with him if he was mm. and i made a <laughs> i made a joke yesterday talking to a friend and professor longo people know him on the show and we were talking about james joyce and i'm going to be doing an in-person episode with him soon i was like hey what do you know what do you want to talk about and he's like oh check out james joyce you know his his finnegan's wake book and all this stuff it's real esoteric Mm -hmm. and and i was like is it carl young schizo or is it philip k dick schizo (laughs) he's like well more of a (laughs) philip k dick but and it's like, I don't know where to stand with him because was he a genius, which we have analytical psychology because of him. So there was something to the method of to, to his madness, right? Or was he crazy? Was he insane? Because it seems like science or seance, whatever you want to call it, focuses on these these figures in history. They focus on their more... Mm academic side like let's say for example mm. newton newton was highly steeped into the occult right he was writing about alchemy he was drawing up templates and drawings of solomon's temple right so this is a guy who was steeped into the occult questioning the existence of god and then here we are mm. on the flip side a young that was also highly highly into the occult but yet there's people who go to college and take co- years and years of courses on Jungian psychology. So right, you don't right. have to answer that question, but before we get into all that, because I, again, I got a whole bunch of questions for you, and I'm, I'm really excited for today's yeah, episode. I'm, how, happy to, I'm happy for it, yeah. How'd you get started in this? Specifically Jung or the podcast? Whichever you want. 
<laughs> All right, cool. We'll do the podcast first. So Creative Codex has been five years now. We just passed that mark. And it started, honestly, when I was a teenager. I was a, I'm, I'm a art kid myself. I, I started with music and, and visual art. And right from the get-go, when, when I was smart enough to, to think about these matters, when I was a teenager, I was obsessed about the idea of what is creative genius. You know, why, why do some people become these, like, icons? You, you know, how does someone become Prince? How does someone become Leonardo da Vinci? How, does, how do any of these people reach that height where they, they surpass everyone else in their field? And they also become important historically to, to human civilization. You know, what are they doing differently in their brain? And I've always been obsessed with this topic. And so, you know, throughout those years until now, I've always been reading about uh, these, all these figures, reading their biographies, reading their journals. And it was basically a natural segue into, well, I have all of this knowledge already about these guys and women as well, obviously. And I still want to learn more about them. How about maybe I'll go into this this new art form, which is podcasting, still relatively, uh, still relatively young in, in the grand scheme of things. And so I pursued that into Creative Codex, and that that's how that came about. And then in terms of uh, Dr. Carl Jung stuff, uh, at the same time, and I feel like this is true for a lot of people who who are artists, you have this you have this inclination to be curious about esoteric things and about spiritual matters. And I think this is partially due to this idea that as, as any kind of, as an artist in any kind of field, you're working with elements that are intangible. You know, if you're a poet, you're working with, with words and rhythms and the melody of words. If, if you're a painter or a visual artist, you're kind of, you feel like you're generating or um, channeling down these ideas from God knows where, and then they come uh, into form as, as these works of art. If you're a musician, it's even worse, which is what, what I was. You know, you're, you're really working with intangible stuff, just sound waves and creating patterns out of sound. And so because of that, I, I feel like it's a very natural inclination uh, for artists to also be curious about things that are esoteric, about things that are occult, things that are spiritual. And, and, and as I had those curiosities, uh, Every once in a while, the name would drop of Carl Jung this, Carl Jung that, the Red Book this, the you know archetypes this, archetypes that, and and that's what drew me in honestly is the curiosity, like all right, well, what's this guy about? And once once you start pulling on that thread and and you know walking into those hallways that, that he's established of his works, there's no getting out of there. You're just going to be there for life, basically. Yeah, and and one of the because I wonder about that too. Are our thoughts our own? You have people like like H.P. Lovecraft that I talk about a lot. You have guys like William S. Burroughs that were using writing as a sort of divinatory method in some sort of way. And something that I've termed grammatical entities where the word is alive, right? I mean, that's the whole thing with the Tetragrammaton and Yadhe Vadhe. And synchronistically enough, I had another synchronicity before we jumped on. I'm translating some Robert Flood work hmm. on his, some Robert Flood work and uh, on some deep research that I'm doing. And of course, he's talking about the origins of the word and how it's alive. And that hmm. plays into my research with Terrence McKenna, Philip K. Dick, where, and it links to Carl Jung with the, Nag Hammadi and Dead Sea Scrolls, where 
the oh. the logos is alive and it's almost like a the way that philip k dick puts it a virus that infects mm. right and the gnostics were through alchemy and the alchemists too the hermeticists were at this point where they were experimenting with alchemy not only as a sort of weird philosophical thing practical thing where you have spagyrics but also to push forward the evolution of man they were at this border this cusp of evolutionary this place in evolution where they were you know able to transcend and it's it's about the dilation of time it's about transcending mm. time itself right and right. one of the things that really draws me into young especially is right looking within which i know you have experience with that but can you extract actual usable knowledge from these other places that he was looking into right because it seems very cryptic and and one of the things that stood out to me was and i wrote this quote down i forgot which which of your podcast it was i think it was on the seven sermons of the dead and mm. the where he says let me find it here something along the lines of why does nature give birth to things it wants to kill and he's talking to the little gremlin he's talking to the little, the little gnomes right and it makes me mm. think of like the dmt elves type of thing that right yeah. mckenna talked about <laughs> and also seymour i forgot his last name the, the guy that invented the supercomputer he would dig he there was a back then there was a tunneling hobby where he would dig tunnels mm. and whenever he was stuck on a problem he would go into these tunnels and start digging and he That's even brilliant. he even writes that these little elves would show up and give him the answers to his problems and I've had this happen to me, not in the form of little elves, but in the form of I'll have a dream and in my dream, I'll be presented with a solution and not, and not just like right. a solution of, Hey, two plus two equals four, but a solution in some weird cryptic way where when you wake up, you go, damn, now, now I know what I got to do. And it's like, you connect the dots right. and you do what you need to do. But it came in this, I've had that happen to me once or twice before in my life. Sure. And so do you believe, cause a lot of the things that he's interacting, you know, he's talking to, to the devil, he's talking to these little elves that are telling him to essentially destroy himself, you know, with the right side of the brain, left side of the brain and all this stuff with the sword. Do you think that you can extract actual usable knowledge from these places that young went to and then to follow that question up right 10 days after writing the last bit of the sermons to the dead i believe is the last book that he wrote he died mm. do you think that he achieved the magnum opus because one thing that's always stood out to me is there is a specific string of words for every human being that will destroy you Think and I don't know if destroy means maybe perhaps killing you off physically, biologically, or the way I like to see it, it's like you dissolve out of existence, right? You connect the dots mm. that you weren't supposed to connect, and you fizzle out of existence. I mean, think of all these ancient civilizations that just got up and disappeared, right? The Mayans, Mohenjo-daro, all these places. Was that part of it where they were interacting with things that they? Maybe weren't supposed to be interacted with because look at Nietzsche. He went insane. Young kind of sort of went insane. You know, looking into the darkest crevices of reality itself. And then well, the he went insane. Yeah, he went insane on purpose, you could say, um, and found his way back so that he could guide his patients and guide the rest of humanity in 
in what that process might look like. That's what the Red Book is, is basically somebody choosing to engage with uh, very chaotic unconscious contents, which is something that somebody who's suffering from like a psychosis might do. They might be wrestling with characters inside of themselves that feel as real as everything in their external world. But in the process, um, by doing it in this willful and conscious way, the way that Jung did it, you you end up learning a tremendous deal about yourself, about your weaknesses, about your strengths. And also, if you're doing it for the aim of, of growing as an individual and, and spiritually as well, then, then it's an incredible, incredible experience. But, but to riff off of some, some of the things you mentioned, so one thing you mentioned about Seven Sermons to the Dead, uh, he wrote that much earlier than, than when he did finally pass. What may have been gotten confused there, there was the work he finished and shortly after he passed, which was most likely in reference to man and his symbols. Okay, that was the last. Uh, that was the last book, and that was a joint effort between him and and his colleagues. So that that's most likely what maybe the wires got crossed. Someone mentioned there, but Seven Sermons to the Dead. He wrote that early on. He wrote that um, that probably would have been in the nineteen twenties. And he lived for a number of decades after that. And the, the reason we know this is because this was a very unique work in that he uh, he didn't credit himself as the author. He, cre- he credited this uh, Gnostic saint or Gnostic prophet named Basilides as the author. And he was so proud of this, this work that he had done that felt like a channeled work that he shared it with friends. It's like one of these few little things that he that he printed from that Red Book experience he had. And he would give it to certain colleagues and be like, hey, check this out. Isn't this crazy in a way? And uh, so we know that there's there's a definite timeline of, you know, when that happened. And then in regards to some of these other things you're talking about, there's so many uh, so many neurons uh, firing Sorry, when you're bro. talking. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's all good. It's fun. So the idea with with Jung and whether the practicality of the things he's engaging with. You can look at something like the Red Book and some people will call it a, a psychological work. It's, a, it's an exploration of somebody's deeper layers of their psychology, of their psyche. And then some people will say, this is a purely spiritual work. This is something that you'd run into if you were reading an, an, an Islamic mystic text or uh, somebody who practices Kabbalah and they're exploring, you know, their inner realms and stuff. But really, it's it's both. It's Jung is a psychologist and he's exploring elements that that are within the fabric of spirituality and spiritual experience. And I don't think even he would narrow it down to say it's only psychology or it's only spiritual, because at the beginning, at the outset of that journey in the book, he's looking for his soul. It's, it's very specific. It's very deliberate language. He's looking for his soul. He finds his soul and he starts a dialogue with it. The rest after that is, is a combination of, of, of spirituality and psychology. Yeah, and, the, and the, like I said, the looking into the inner, and I know you had tried the, of the, you explained your vision, which was really bizarre too. And it's almost like when, he's being told to extract the liver 
of the mm. of the boy, right? And the liver is right. interesting because the liver is right. The liver. It's almost like where they where they had uh, pierced Jesus on the side, right? Like that area there. Is that where the liver is? Let me make sure that was the it. Liver the liver might be lower. Anyway, was the liver? I don't know if it was Jesus being pierced in the liver, but he was pierced in the lower ribs. In that area. So let's, let's before we because I've heard the liver is essentially they call it the liver because it keeps you alive. So like the you know like the mm. liver Jesus. Yeah, traditionally the organs you have various organs have associations. I believe I've heard the liver referred to as the seat of the soul. Yes. In more ancient traditions. Let me see here. Is it the liver? That yeah, and there was there? a specific vision he engaged with where where yeah just to give context to listeners where Salome this uh, female figure he's, he's in dialogue with instructs him to mm, extract or cut out the, the liver from this dead child, basically. Yeah, which is, right? It's one of the darker visions in the book, yeah. Which Salome is also an interesting character and in, in that links to John the Baptist. Yeah. But yeah, so the side work kind of sort of near the liver, right? And then also oh, I think... Prom- it is within the ribs. Okay, I thought it was lower. Prometheus is also condemned to having his liver eaten nonstop yes. as a curse. Totally. Right? That, that was his whole thing by the, it would yeah. regenerate every single. All right. So the liver, right. The, an, an interesting piece, an, an interesting organ you have Galen thought as well, where they, they believe that if certain parts of the body held certain aspects that you're saying were the seat of the soul. And also I'm just thinking, because this involves the, the Gnostics as well, which is what I first got into when I started podcasting. It was a lot of Gnosticism. Mm. And oh, yeah. the reason, right, Gnosis is an interesting concept because there is nothing written about it. There is nothing. It's one of those mysteries where it's like, what was Gnosis? What's well, whatever sacred to you? And I'm just thinking about, right, we're talking about Young looking into his innermost parts of his psyche or soul, whatever he was looking for. And almost like, mm. what if that's what the Gnostics were up to as well? Because they were using mandalas. There is spells and incantations that we have of the Gnostics that we don't know what they were for. Almost like a glossalia. And again, it goes back to the whole text itself, the, the being the living word in some sort of way. And what if that sucks you in, right? What if that is like what you melt into? Because writing, I've always looked at, you mentioned the creativity aspect of it all. Well, you have Mike, Michael Myers with his Atlanta Fujins where he combines alchemy, these plates, with poems, where with a story, right, right. with music on top of it mm-hmm, all. Mm-hmm. So there's something yeah, about Mayer, that, yeah. that, that trinity that is, I believe, sucks people. And that's why media is so powerful as well. That's why video and movies are so powerful. These cinemagicians, they, they, they use this and... I want to get your opinion on this because you have a lot of people who, right? So Jung really introduced the concepts of the archetypes and how at the core level of all these Disney movies and all the things that we know and love, there's the archetypes, these core concepts that resonate with us on a deeper level. Maybe that's ingrained into our DNA. Who knows? But you have people who will argue against, and I believe, this is my personal idea, and I want to get your opinion on this, that the elites, and by the elites, I know you don't like the lizard people, but 
and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I've, I've heard you reference. I love the lizard people. <laughs> I've heard you reference people them. who dress like lizards. It's great for Halloween. Yeah, whatever you want to, to dress up. But the idea of these reptilian overlords is what I call them. If they are lizards or not. Oh, okay. Reptilians, right. That they use these concepts to manipulate the psyche of humanity and of civilizations and of nations and of people as a whole. You have people who will argue against that. Like, no, the elites don't use these symbols. They're just... This is just what they make. And this is just coincidentally falls in line with these archetypes. You know, the elites don't use symbology for evil purposes and sinister things. It's like, there's a reason why they use the symbols that they use. And okay, a majority might be using them to be edgy, right? Because it looks cool. I like the Ouroboros. It's a cool symbol. I like the Eye of Providence. It's a cool symbol. I like the pyramid. It's a cool symbol. But do you believe that they they might be using these? What are what are your thoughts on that? Could they be using them to manipulate people in some negative sort of MK Ultra type of way? So it's a great topic. I love talking about this and thinking about this. Um, I have I have uh, I guess what one would see as a nuanced view of it because you know you could see it. All of this is very black and white. The the black and white part to me is that. It's obvious that we are being being manipulated by many forces at once. We're being manipulated by the news. Um, you know, everything is so polarized now, and each polarity wants you to to tune in to their version of reality, right? And we're being manipulated by foreign governments that you know influence everything from our so, social media apps to things that we see day to day. We're being manipulated by advertisers every single day. I mean, there's a, a billion-dollar industry of advertisement, and what it's dedicated to is figuring out what's going to get you to buy this product, what's going to get you to go into that store, and they spend billions of dollars on this, you know, and uh, we're clearly being being manipulated left and right, you know, uh, from all these factors. Now, in terms of the, the symbology element, I mean, uh, at, at, at the end of the day, people will use anything they can to manipulate others in these, you know, from these positions of power, let's say I just described, without even getting into, you know, reptilians and stuff like that. Uh, if it works, they'll use it. I don't personally think that esoteric symbolism and occult symbolism does anything to, except except for me, maybe. Like for me, if I see the Roboros, I'd be like, oh, oh shit, what's this? Um, is it what's 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 going on here? What's this new item? What's this new product? I think for most people, they'll just see an interesting symbol and it'll it'll wash over them and maybe not resonate. Uh, but but you're right though that occasionally you will see products, shows, movies, what have you. Um, utilizing certain symbols that have roots in esoteric traditions to me the way i i most often see that being used let's say there was a there was a trend and i think sometimes there is still currently in fashion that they'll sometimes use you know everything from all seeing eyes to like more esoteric things and uh, things that are that for anybody who's who's versed in it like like you you'd be like what's going on here i think a lot of those cases are the creators of those those items and and shows using the symbols that that have a clear amount of of depth to them and history to them uh, as a way to 
to falsify their own depth and history and validity. Because if you take something like an Ouroboros, which is an ancient symbol that goes as far back as, as anyone can trace, and you, you, you just slap it on a T-shirt, one, it looks great, always looks great. It seems to resonate. And you don't have to do much more work than that. You've just put a bunch of symbols together that look like they resonate. And, and it's kind of a cheap and quick way, whether you're making a movie or, you know, making the next like Nicolas Cage, you know, thriller or whatever, to just throw a bunch of symbols together that you probably don't even understand, but that feel like they resonate. They, they have like a tangible um, history to them and a mystery to them. And I feel like maybe, you know, 75% of the cases is, is what's going on there is people just using things they don't understand, but that feel cool. So with that said, what if they're not speaking to us directly, right? Because for a person like you and I, where we talk about this, that we find this interesting because not everyone does, not a lot of people are interested in this sort of stuff, we recognize it. Right, like, oh, that's a that's a symbol of the Gnostics, or that's a symbol of Hermetics, or that's a symbol of X, Y, Z. But you've also covered that a lot of the times we, the decisions that we make, and a lot of the things get imprinted in our. Or might I don't know if it was you. I think it might have been, I might might have been reading a book, but Philip K. Dick at least talks about how these movies talk to our subconscious, and they're meant to be right. The subconscious being this, again, this concept almost like. Corbin's Mundus Imaginatus, where it's this area that exists. And the way I love the way Corbin puts it, where it gushes forth from the imagination. And mm. a lot of these things, I, I believe, because I mean, I've seen it in the literature of, for example, Kenneth Grant and a lot of these occultists, where they quite literally become portals in some sort of way. And these things on the other side, whether they be ultra terrestrials, extraterrestrials, aliens it's it's an alien concept essentially but these things these entities manifest in our reality almost like a stranger things type of scenario mm -hmm. where it comes forth right from the upside down from the mob zone from the from the universe b into our reality whatever our reality even is because the more i look into i don't think that i understand any of the concepts that i've talked about more now than i did two three years ago <laughs> to be 100 percent, like I'll, I'll connect another piece of information that completely throws out whatever i understood or thought i understood about the yeah, occult yeah. or the esoteric you know so what if it's meant for this other plane the subconscious which is a powerful thing and can well, yeah can we can we connect the subconscious and the ego or are those two separate things? Do you know, is the ego and the subconscious the same or similar? So, well, we need to narrow it down to which school of, of psychology we're talking mm. in. So let's say if we're sticking to Jungian psychology or um, more formally known as analytical psychology, Jung defined the ego as it's Latin definition, which in, in Latin, if you translate ego, it just means I, just the word I, just a reference to I. And that's, I think, a beautiful and poetic uh, way to narrow, narrow down what the ego is and what it means to Jung, let's say. And also, I think, what it meant to Freud, because some of these ideas uh, Jung built off from what Freud had already established in his research. So 
anything that refers to itself as I is the ego. Now, that doesn't mean that is uh, the way that we use it, you know, in, in our day to day. Oh, you know, he's so egotistical. Uh, it's not necessarily that connotation. That's where I'm, I'm saying we have to narrow it down to a certain school of, th of thought. To Jung, the ego isn't something you want to get rid of, you know, to surpass and like all that stuff. You need the ego. The ego is just your everything that is self-referential within your your vision of your, your consciousness. You know, so it's your memories. It's what you do every day. It's your thoughts. It's your your behaviors and your motivations. All that stuff that you are aware of is your ego. And then the unconscious, which is interchangeable with subconscious. In in Jung, we just refer to it as unconscious. You know, day to day, some people call it the subconscious. Same thing. Uh, the unconscious is all that stuff behind the curtain, and it's famously you know, visualized and shown in a picture uh, where, if you imagine an iceberg, and the top of the iceberg uh, that's about the size of, let's say, a ship, is is the ego and your conscious mind. And then when you look under the surface of the ocean, uh, there's an enormous body that's the iceberg. And that's the unconscious. It's like all this other stuff that you didn't realize is there and is influencing what's going on in your life and in your conscious mind too. So that's the unconscious. And the, the two obviously have ways that they interact. And there's there's ways that you can engage your relationship with your unconscious, which you could argue is, is kind of the whole point of analytical psychology itself is these methods of engaging a relationship with your unconscious uh, for with the intention to basically unravel a lot of the knots and complexes that are in there and become aware of them and in the process grow as an individual and, and reach your your full potential really forgot where it was that I heard about the right the dark self is able to reveal the shadow the shadow is able to reveal all the secrets to you right because I mean that that's part of being human right or humans being that that Faustian complex of wanting to obtain I mean that's why I'm here as well right reading and researching that Faustian mm -hmm. complex of wanting to learn knowledge like all the things like my son mm -hmm. he's five years old he thinks i know everything he thinks i can fix everything <laughs> and the other day he asked me he's like do you do you know everything i'm like no there's no way there's no way to ever no, no, no. know everything he's like well why not i go because there's just two and like as i'm as i'm answering i'm just like all these different philosophies and and religions and everything just run through i was like there's just no way that you would be able to learn it how would you be even be able to cope with yourself like if you learned everything there ever was about everything like right that that's such... it'd be yeah at that point you'd be useless you'd be spending so much time <laughs> in a room just just studying with your head in the books and, and with the beard and stuff yeah yeah you'd be not functional in the world so i want to share the synchronicities that i had with you know i want to dive into the red book here i know i've hijacked the first half of the episode yeah. i'm sorry about that i just had so many things oh, no up leading up to this episode i want to talk to you about and so it started off with so i've been binging your your show these past few days getting ready for for this episode and just to prep myself on young and from the interpretation of somebody who was, has a lot more hours put into his work than i and I'm just in that synchronistic mindset. So I had a family member who had a cracked headlight 
right? And they asked me like, hey, do you think you could get this headlight for me? So I went ahead and I, and I went to the local junkyard, right? And, and on the way there, I was listening to your podcast. On the way back, I was listening to it. And they got a little bit more specific as I was like, oh, well, that's just a coincidence. So I pull up to the junkyard and I'm waiting in line to to get checked into the junkyard. And of course, out of all <laughs> the out of all the days, right, this was yesterday, out of all the days that I could have pulled up to the junkyard, of course, I'm looking for a headlight. And that day on a Wednesday right. out of all days, there was right. A he- it would have been weird if it was 33 percent off, but it was a headlight and tail. Oh, that'd be great tail light special going on so i took a picture of it there i am right with my little with my little tool bag my little cowboy boots on it's kind of cold in florida so i got my little camo jacket on and i'm i'm laughing as soon as i saw and i don't know if there was anybody on the other side they probably saw me laughing my ass off because i'm i'm looking at this smiling like look at that weirdo so anyways i interacted there we did our thing and then on the way back where i'm listening to your podcast and around this part where Young is talking to and interacting with, I believe, Eli- was it Elijah that he interacts with? Some, mm-hmm. some yes, one of them, yeah. point or other, whatever. I was listening to that. And I want to, I took a, I didn't take the whole screenshot on my phone, but it was 1236, right? That I'm, that I'm listening to this. Mm. And one of my patrons, bro, I can't make this shit up. Like one of my patrons at 1236. He's hmm. writing, isn't Elias? Because I was talking about oh. Elias Artista, <laughs> the 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 right, the immortal alchemist, the the Rosicrucian Messiah. He literally comments. He goes, "Isn't Elias in English Elijah?" <laughs> and I'm like blown away because I go, "Wait!" So I comment back, and I told Donnie, I said, "Bro, this is a synchronicity right now. I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna talk about you." So shout out to Donnie for being part of the Patreon. <laughs> he checks everything out, and for those that want to be a part of the Patreon, sign up Patreon.com/slash the One One Podcast. You're going to be part of the synchronicities. You're going to be part of the show. Right. So yeah. it was super bizarre to me that we're. That, sure. What are the chances, bro? Sure. That that in this right. part of the episode, he's talking to Elijah, right? One of those mm-hmm. people that, right, kind of renewed by fire, just weird, weird, right, weird biblical figure as well. And he, mm-hmm. that's the Salome part, right, where he's interacting with Salome, and then she, he's like. You know, she's my daughter, but then also I'm you. And it's like, what? Like, are we all one? I'm you, you're me. Like, what's going on? So I was like, there's there's just no way. And I'm sure other things happened to me that I was like, but maybe I was in that mind of, of, of that train of thought where I was manifesting these things because synchronicity is a, is a weird one. And it plays into mm-hmm. alchemy because it was through Gerard Dorn's work that right young developed the active imagination synchronicity aspect of it all because it's like he believed that these alchemists were inter they were like the first self-help sort of thing where they were interacting with these archetypes now i have mixed feelings about that because the right the intention goes a long way and i don't believe that i believe that these mandalas and these plates that these alchemists were drawing or had drawn they were very matter of fact and it was meant to be used for their purpose at that specific point in time so when it's depicting Mm -hmm. this thing it's meant to portray this alchemical process but then young took those symbols and then kind of sort of formed 
a mythology around around them essentially is what I like you know he assigned and again we have because of these ramblings of a madman we have analytical psychology which is through the through the philosophical workings of these alchemists we have chemistry right we have a, a, a thing that is practical where medicines are made where where all these other things that destroy and help people too right because chemistry can be used to make a lot of bad things too but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right so what are your what are your thoughts on synchronicities and and maybe tapping into what i even thought about what of these things that he was talking into talking to in his his red book it reminds me of edward kelly and john d talking to these other entities on either side uh, maybe mm -hmm, perhaps sure. they were ultra terrestrials almost sort of like these higher things and then you have crowley that talks about these daemons being you like it's no it's bro it's it's you it's your mind it's everything inside here you know so it's just a weird yeah yeah yeah. yeah. What, are, what are your thoughts on that yeah no there's a lot there we can pick on so first thing we want to establish this idea that jung has this mental breakdown around between 1912 to 1913. It's caused by a, a very contentious split with his mentor, Sigmund Freud. Um, he basically, uh, there's so much stress involved with this because now he's losing all of the colleagues and friends he has. Everyone stays with, within Freud's circle instead. And he becomes ostracized from his community. And he even becomes labeled as a mystic in a derogatory way because of his own personal views on things. So he has this split with Freud, and it's, it, it causes a very uh, personal and professional crisis. In the after effects of that, on the tail end of that, he starts to have these visions that he has no control of. And what I would imagine probably happened is in these moments he describes, he's riding on a train uh, through the Swiss Alps, and he sees a river of blood. It's a very apocalyptic, chaotic scene. I have to imagine he was probably like half asleep, maybe. Um, this happens, you know, if you're in what's called a hypnagogic state. You might receive what feel like visions. It feel like these uh, it can, can be a scene playing out, can be imagery. It feels like a, a mixture of a dream and, and something else. It's not quite fully a dream yet, but they can be very vivid. So I imagine maybe that's what would, ha would have been happening with him because he definitely wasn't schizophrenic by, by clinical terms. Um, so anyway... Uh, through that, he then ends up, you know, engaging his inner world, engaging with his unconscious and having these kinds of experiences where he is talking to figures that are inside of him and such. OK, now all of that happens without him even being aware of Gnosticism or alchemy. He's engaging all of this himself because he thinks and he's worked with schizophrenics before. Those, those were his first clinical um, in his first clinical experiences. But now he's, he has his own practice of, of patience and stuff. And so he thinks, well, if I'm going to be any use to people that come to me with, with actual crises in their life that, that are experiencing anything like this that I've just experienced, how am I going to be helpful to them if I don't even know what this is? Like, what is it? What does this, what does this mean when somebody who is clinically completely sane, not schizophrenic, has an apocalyptic vision, and then that, that vision repeats multiple times over the course of a few months? What do you do with that? 
and so he, that's why he ended up engaging these these, these um, experiences himself. And usually at night, you know, he was still working as as a clinician and as a therapist at that time. So he would do this at night. Everybody else is asleep, and it was only after the fact, about fifteen years after he's been doing this, that he's sent a manuscript called The Secret of the Golden Flower. And it's a Taoist manuscript um, that is considered a, a manuscript within the tradition of inner alchemy in Taoism. And that's what takes him down this rabbit hole of finding alchemy, basically. And then he sees alchemy as a, continu a continuation of the thread that was started with Gnosticism, which he had been studying a few years before that. So he sees Gnosticism and alchemy as early forms of psychology, basically, because they, they're spiritual traditions, but they're in very deliberately engaging an individualized experience of, of self-growth. So, you know, it's, it's dressed in all of these spiritual things, but in the process, you're really working on developing yourself, on uh, engaging with uh, obviously your bad habits with your complexes uh, and engaging with figures in your imagination. And this is all stuff that eventually he was also developing at the same time and sees these as, as kind of parallels. So I just wanted to mention that because that's important to see the the context of the narrative as, as it unfolded that he, he discovers that Gnosticism and alchemy were basically like early precursors of the kind of psychology that he's, forming and it's important to because the red book came out fairly re you know recent not not it wasn't mm -hmm. uh, you know 2000 something 2010 something like that like let's look it up way red too recently book. yeah and it was basically locked in a vault for 50 years after jung's death let's see here red book published okay Versus that, yeah, two, October 7, 2009, versus when it was written. It yes, was written so close between what, 14 and 30? 1914 and 19, because he was working on it yeah. throughout his life. And have you tried writing? And he continued own? working on, on a different. Sorry, sorry. Now, have you tried writing your own red book at all? Is, is it, are, are you working on anything like that at all? Because I know you've tried some of these techniques to be able to look into right we have outer space and we have inner space have you right tried this technique so in um in the documents and anecdotes of jung's patients of that time period uh, one of them very clearly at least admits that he was encouraging them to create what effectively would be their own red books like the he he thought that this was the way to go to engage with your unconscious in a serious and imaginative way where where that process becomes this uh this very beautiful like interaction really of, of self-growth and uh, yeah i've engaged it in various ways i mean as an artist you're you're constantly one engaging with your unconscious and bringing forth things that it offers you and then things that you're kind of intuiting you know when you are standing before even, you know, making a painting, writing a poem, writing music. Uh, there are decisions that you make that are just natural, logical steps. You know, if you're working 
on a pop song, you know you've got to basically have a, at least a verse, a chorus, a verse, a chorus. But then there's thousands of other decisions. And the, a lot of those other decisions are made intuitively. And so, you know, what is intuition? It's, it's basically an inclination from your unconscious to go a certain direction. And so as an artist, you're always dealing with these kinds of inclinations from the unconscious. But let's say beyond that, not to skirt the question. Um, yeah, I've engaged in a lot of what Jung would call active imagination experiences. You basically sit in a, what is a form of meditation and you start a fantasy and that fantasy is directed inward towards something inside of you. So if you can imagine, like, what would it be like to take a fantasy or a daydream and turn it inside of itself, like turn it inward? So an example that Jung gives that he uses as a technique for a lot of his Red Book experiences is uh, what I call the digging method. And I don't know if it was what maybe you were referring to. I think it was a mathematician that you said had been doing. So you find a place that's familiar to you. I've used my, my parents' basement in my childhood home. I've used a backyard. I've used a closet. Um, and you just start digging just with a shovel. And you're imagining, you're daydreaming this. And then you have your eyes closed, obviously. You also ideally would have a book in your lap so that you can write down what you end up seeing. In the process, as, as you're digging, it has, you have to believe this with all of your might, that this is what you're actually doing. You have to hear the dirt, you know, feel the weight of the shovel, because the more realistic it is to you, the, the, the more what's, what's about to happen will be, uh, will be true, and you won't be manipulating the vision. It'll just be coming from an engagement with the unconscious. So you're digging, digging, digging. Eventually something happens. Either you reach a door, you know, you reach a treasure chest, you reach a tunnel, and then you just keep going. And in the process, you eventually engage things that you don't expect. It can be figures, characters, scenes, you know, items. And all of those things are spontaneous. And so that's why you want to write everything down to, to ponder about it later. And when you engage figures, you can have conversations with them, basically. And that's that's the, the, the gist of what you're trying to do with an active imagination. Yeah, and that the guy who it was the guy who created supercomputers and he actually I guess, I mean, mm. and that's why I don't think I don't know if if he was speaking alchemically or not, right? Because these guys are like that, but he was quite literally digging a tunnel. Like there was a and apparently it was a thing where I want to say it was the 50s or something like that, where there was hobbies that people would just, which is really bizarre, right? You, you, you're digging a tunnel, right? That's kind that's of great. I love it. It's kind of dangerous. But the, the, <laughs> I believe that when you're, I don't know about you, but when I'm listening to something, if, if doing chores around the house or, Right. The only one I can think of is like mowing the lawn and you got your headphones in and you're listening to a podcast. And I feel like in my experience, similar to like when you write things down where you're more connected to the experience, I feel like when with working with your hands, you're more mm -hmm. connected, right? They say that doodling as you're listening to a lecture helps you remember things. Now, and I don't know if that's a sort of way of like creating your own sort of mind palace, if you will, where you're associating certain strokes with certain pieces of information if you will 
to what you're mm-hmm, listening mm-hmm. to and that way you're able to retain it but there's something visceral how you're saying the more the more you feel it the deeper mm-hmm. you're gonna go and no mm-hmm. pun intended because you're trying to go deep and i know you yeah spend your vision where you were going into a tunnel and then went down another tunnel and then went into the Mm-hmm. The, the girl's head the further is... you go yeah, yeah the further you go the the less control you have of what you end up seeing and interacting with that's what's really cool about it so i'm sorry sorry to interrupt you. no no you're good and it just makes me think of whenever i've done the sensory deprivation tank where mm. the the i guess the vision of the imagination the the fantasies they're they're scary in the in the fact that not only are you how you're saying facing your inner demons uh, you know the darkness but i feel like when i'm in the tank you're just a floating head essentially a floating piece of consciousness right. and when you start yeah, think, a point of consciousness yeah. yeah you start to cut kind of sort of manifest things within the tank with you in, in a really scary way mm-hmm. and you got to be careful where you go and i can just you know you can sort of snap out of it whenever you want but it's like when you start to become conscious, it's weird because when you become conscious of what you're thinking about, that's when it trips you out. If you're in a tank mm. that's dark and you start thinking about alligators or something else, you know, coming to get you, it's like, oh, you can see where that can go wrong quick. Now, take that and turn it up to a thousand with something else, something even more horrific. And it's like, yeah, you could. I could see where you could do some damage to yourself and it just makes right. you mentioned schizophrenics and it's like, we've been painted this picture that schizophrenics are crazy. They're, they're, they're wired wrong, almost like this bad stigma. But what if they're the most sane? What if those are the people that have the, the, the most uh, clear view of, of what reality is. Right. But the thing is about, it goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning where I know, schizophrenics where they're not extracting information that they didn't already know but it goes back to plato we're all remembering maybe we we know everything we just got to remember it right because it makes me think of the vision with the little elves of of young the gnomes where they're telling him to right pierce was it pierce them with the sword or was it pierce his brain or something with the sword it's like do mm-hmm. it yeah the kabiri yeah and then he's like well i'm not gonna do it it's like well do it and it makes me think of philip k dick when he took the dose of the vitamins to try to synchronize his brain together to try to get mm. both of his hemispheres and you have the bicameral mind theory where back then people were more in touch with the voice of god mm. because both of their brain you know both sides of their brains were working in conjunction with one another so right. what do you think? And I, I felt like Young was trying to kind of do that with, with the with the interaction with the what would you call it? the Kamiri is it is what the, what he called them? Oh, the Kabiri, yeah, Kabiri. the Kabiri in, in the Red Book. These um, uh, these creatures appear in the lore of ancient Greece, and mm. they're they're even uh, within folk tales and and such. But in terms of uh, just to riff off of what you mentioned about. You know, this idea that maybe schizophrenics are seeing the, the reality in its true form. Uh, so uh, Jung writes a little bit about th- things that deal with schizophrenia because he worked with it, again, in his first clinical experiences. And he was working in an actual hospital for a number of years uh, as somebody who was, was trying to help people who were suffering from this. 
And, you know, you can imagine, you know, the difficulty that people have right now with these kinds of illnesses, these kinds of disorders and ailments, and, and what, it, what that would have been like a hundred years ago, you know, how little. Go visit chosenone.com It's easy to remember If you just sing along Chosenone.com Go visit chosenone.com The chosen one Yes, he is the chosen one He's got his own comic And now he's got his own song Cause he's the chosen one Yes, he is the chosen one Go buy a copy at chosenone.com. Chosenone.com. Go visit chosenone.com. It's easy to remember if you just sing along. Chosenone.com. Go visit chosenone.com. How much less we knew about how to treat it or how to interact with it or how to respect somebody who has it or what 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 kind of stigma there were that there was in society for these kinds of things. So one thing that Jung posits, uh, his, one of his theories about schizophrenia is that these are people with this specific disorder that they have where uh, they don't have the kind of filters that we do on what we are experiencing from our own brain. So uh, what, what Jung saw in, in, documenting the visions of schizophrenics and such is that they seem to be getting these visions and interactions from their unconscious, like that these things are pouring out and that they have no way of, of filtering it out or stopping it the way that let's say, you know, for lack of a better term, regular people do. We, we have all these filters we aren't even aware of and we can keep ourselves in these compartments and in the process that helps us not have to engage with these bizarre and unpleasant things in the process of let's say like turning a daydream in on itself and then you know going into interactions with your unconscious you end up seeing some really strange and bizarre stuff sometimes even just random entertaining stuff and you could say that this is some you engaging what let's say somebody with schizophrenia might see out in their external world because that filter hasn't stopped it you know from emanating outward and so I, I think it's, it's pretty thoughtful, uh, uh, like a little exploration to have uh, as to what might be happening to somebody who's experiencing that kind of stuff, you know? Makes me think of my first and only experience with psilocybin where it, mm. was, it was at the peak. I think I tapped into something that day where it was at the mm. peak of right that thing during 2020 at the very peak of that, when when I was in that other dimension, that's what, that's essentially what I consider it, this other right. dimension. I was, I felt all of the panic, all of the mm. stress, all of the anxiety of the world at that time. Now, what was mm. interesting about that was that when I started to freak out, I kept telling myself I go I went well if I freak out and I got to go to the hospital then I'm going to get sick there and it's mm -hmm. going to be really bad then <laughs> so it was like this endless cycle of like I got to remain calm but it's like if I right. start to freak out I'm going to have to go to the you know and they're going to 
then I'm going to be exposed. Like, you know, it was this whole thing, but <laughs> that that's what it kind of sort of makes how you're saying we do have filters. Is there any evidence that Young was was experimenting with hallucinogens at all? Is there anything about that? No, no, there's no indication of that at all. You know, uh, that doesn't mean he didn't at some point, you know, smoke some weed or something that may have been available to him at that time because, you know, he had traveled the world a number of times. Uh, he was a big fan of tobacco. He had a, he could often be found with his smoking pipe and such. Um, but, you know, when you engage with experiences like that, and you when, when you realize that at any time, you know, you could say like, okay, you know, everybody's in bed by 10 p.m. You can sit down and have these kinds of visionary, mind-altering states. Uh, drugs start to be like, well, that feels like you have less control of that. You know, I, I could engage something very similar uh, without having to, you know, enter into that kind of chaos. So it also was a different time period, though, for him. You know, this was... You know, the early 1900s, you know, 20s, 30s, the kind of hallucinogens that are so common to us nowadays wouldn't have really be, been easily accessible, except maybe like, you know, traveling somewhere in South America to try ayahuasca or something. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah. And, and the tobacco is important because tobacco is used in a lot of religious ceremonies and mm. a lot of ancient cultures. And I've, I've actually yeah. recently started smoking tobacco through a pipe right so mm, it's cool it's a little bit of a different experience and i feel like the use of my tobacco late at night has aided my dreams in a, in a little bit really? i've been having weird dreams recently and i remember i woke up one morning and i was like all right i'm gonna i'm not gonna write this down i'm gonna remember what happened mm. i'm gonna remember right and i was doing something and then i went back to sleep and i forgot what the dream was no, forget. <laughs> never never trust yourself to remember never yeah, you're never never, never. never gonna because you're saying like you know you're up and you're in this kind of weird state where you're in between the dream rather you're in this liminal area mm. where you're in between the dream and the waking so it's like well and i and i i don't keep a dream journal I, I I probably should, but I don't. Yeah, it helps. It helps. Because, but again, I'm not I'm not one to really look for answers like that. Right? I know there's a lot a lot comes with dream interpretation, but I feel like I have so much other stuff going on already. I was like, I'm gonna really start <laughs> deciphering my dreams, and sometimes I will Google like, oh, I saw such and such thing in my dream. Like, what does that mean? But I feel like a lot of sure. the stuff out there is generic. You know, it's like, no, it's too generic. Yeah. Well, that's the thing with, you know, in analytical psychology, one of the things you do when you you know sit down with your Jungian analyst is that you have to start keeping a dream journal because in Jung's understanding of the mind, if you're interacting with the unconscious, if you're trying to address, you know, your complexes, uh, your dreams every single night are essentially a snapshot of what's going on in your unconscious. And as you start to trace them and you have them documented, you can see certain patterns arising over the course of a few months, you know, that, that show the development of, of your own psyche. And so when you're in analysis, uh, you basically spend some, some of that time is sharing what this dream was with the analyst. And then they help you try to figure out its meaning because 
some of the symbols might be universal and they might be archetypal, you could say. But then there's even with archetypal symbols, we we dress them in personal associations, you know. So a raven to me might mean something different than a raven to you, even though a raven might be kind of a universal symbol, you know. It might be because I've maybe had more experiences with ravens in my neighborhood and maybe to me they associate with you know something more personal to me rather than something like that to somebody else might just be a generic kind of death omen kind of symbol you know so to to one person in their dream seeing a raven might be related to a process of death and transformation but to me it might just be because in this case it's kind of like my spirit animal i associate a lot with ravens so you know these kinds of symbols they morph to to the individual consciousness that's experiencing them too so we have young here experimenting and writing down of his experiences in the red book right he has various encounters with excuse me various encounters with various entities right we have satan in there we have we have solomon we have all these different people and Tor, and again, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. It was the ending bits of the red book that became the seven sermons of the dead. Is that correct? And there was like two yeah, versions of yeah, it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's grouped under a section called scrutinies, and it's yeah, it's toward the end of the the formal thing that Jung called Liber Novus that we call the red book. Uh, yeah, that's all I can say. So this section, because this is one of the things that has really interested me with Jung, the the concept of Jung and the paranormal, right? This essentially is what it is, like these these hauntings, I guess. I mean, and and there's the there's the whole idea: did he bring this upon himself by unlocking those floodgates, for lack of a better term, of maybe looking into things that you weren't supposed to be looking into because one of the things about psychedelics, right? These altered states of consciousness almost feels alien where you're not supposed to sort of be there. And that's why maybe perhaps we don't remember a lot of our dreams because it's this other aspect of ourselves that's interacting with these other places. And I just mm. think of all the stories I've heard about, where people do ayahuasca and they're in these other states and they're looked at by these entities like there's a little bit something different to you right and because you're kind of sort of conscious like what are you doing here right and some of these things can be very grotesque and the way i've come to understand that is they seem grotesque to us in a certain state of consciousness because we're not at that right frequency where we need to be to interact with these entities or or see them so they appear horrific they appear very lovecraftian to us in our waking state right whatever that is but then if we were to inter interact with them in another state they would be different right almost like a mm. young was in the correct state of correct state of mind when he was interacting with these things but even then it got kind of dark too or was you know it would get sinister in some areas right but he it was yeah. just tame enough to where you could deal with it so i'm just thinking about how right so we have the seven sermons of the dead we have these i guess this group of dead people visiting him right like this this haunting where they yeah. were knocking violently at the door was it ring they were ringing right. the bell? Mm, yeah it, it was uh, the context uh, that you're talking about was that 
uh, Jung describes it in the book Memories, Dreams, Reflections, which is kind of like his autobiography. That there, that at that period of time, uh, for a few days, it felt like, in his words, that his home was filled with spirits and that they're like filled to the brim from door to door. And that's how he tries to describe the kind of the strange aura of the household, which his family was in during that time, and that a, a number of strange happenings occurred uh, while that was uh, while that time period was going on, including you know a few bizarre dreams. I, I believe uh, his son had a very strange dream at one point. You a picture in, in those too, two right? days. I think so. Yeah, and then I haven't read the account in a little while, but the key uh, thing you're referring to is. Uh, 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 kind of at the climax of that strange feeling in the household, everyone heard a bell ring at the front door and everyone looked and there was no one there. And then he went to the door, opened it. And that night he started writing seven sermons to the dead, that this very biblical kind of sounding text. And he credits it not to himself. He credits it to this uh, Gnostic prophet named Basilides. And in it, it's a dialogue between the person who's speaking, who you could say is the prophet, and the dead who have come knocking at the door. And it's a it's very strange text, incredibly dense esoterically, and every single line in that text could be interpreted in three different ways. It's like he's speaking in a, a metaphor within a metaphor, and it means something psychologically to him, because he's you know at this time still developing his own theories so it means something psychologically it means something spiritually and it means something philosophically and those three sometimes unite under one meeting and then sometimes they're just separate but they exist they coincide together and it's it's really paradoxical in that sense that's why it's it's definitely this kind of inspired work and he says that after he finished writing it the aura of the house that was inside just disappeared like all the spirits just they left and they were like, okay, you, you did your part. See you later. <laughs> Do we know which house that was? Do, does he say which one it was? Um, into, I'm not sure. What was his family home he was living in at the time? It may have been in Zurich. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Because I know he's got that house with the with the cubicle stone outside of it. I think it was that his house. Oh, that might be his tower, maybe. Yes, the tower the, with the, the Bollingen Tower. Yes. Uh, yeah, that was Bollingen Tower wasn't his family home. Bollingen Tower was and is a tower he built himself because at one point in his life, during interactions with with you know these these figures inside of him, one of those figures named Philemon becomes basically like a guide to him um, through through this this soul journey. And he realizes he needs to build his own tower. <laughs> and so he, he goes about doing that. And that, that becomes his, his tower. That's his, it's, again, this thing you were talking about, bringing something into the physical realm and working with the physical uh, and, and how, how much value that has and how we've kind of lost the sense of that because in our technological world, everything is so digitized, right? It's so like ephemeral. But we, we need that physical stuff. Did he tell him why he needed a tower? Do you know? It's been a little while since I read that particular account, but it definitely had to do with, again, creating something physical in in the exterior world. And the process of, you can imagine the process of building something brick by brick, designing it 
and then eventually knowing you're going to inhabit that structure as your an, an embodiment of, of who you are in a sense there's there's so much value and symbolism to that you know um just even just as as a as a process of uh, physicalizing you know creating a physical element of your self growth it's it's i imagine that definitely was a motivation oh yeah there's bullingen tower yeah because the it's always been kind of connected the tower with the wizard or the alchemist right almost like mm. some sort of weird thing where we have this little homunculus because I'm I'm real deep into the homunculus. Yeah. Uh, I think his name was Telus Forrest or something like that. I forget the guy, the the little homunculus's name, but the idea of at least in at least in Dungeons and Dragons, the reason why the wizard has a towers for a I think they call it like a strategic point during a battle. Right? Mm. It's a higher elevation, mm. but there's something more esoteric sure. about these towers and even esoteric i know on your on your logo you have the labyrinth and a lot of these labyrinths were under right in these cathedrals that you could say had towers as well they're the sure, the, yeah. the the labyrinth was underneath of that right and if you really think about the going up a tower it's almost like going up a labyrinth so i wonder if there's something to that almost like a meditative state of going up these flight because we've always been whenever whenever you see like a large flight of stairs, we kind of are fascinated. Like, damn, that's a lot of stairs. Mm -hmm. You know, let's take the elevator right. instead. How you're saying, but the elevator is the technology that disconnects you yeah. from those stairs. Right. So there's yeah, some, no, something that's, weird that's there. The beauty. Yeah, no, there's a there's a beauty to um putting yourself through physical discomfort and a challenge that basically is like a physical journey right there's of course like the classic like climbing the you know 10,000 steps up the mountain in tibet you know to to see the master and uh the idea of a labyrinth in these cathedrals and that's the, the labyrinth let's say one of them that i use from chartres cathedral in the logo of my show the the curious thing about a labyrinth versus a maze there's a difference between labyrinths and maze, mazes a labyrinth you start at one point at the entrance and the winding path you take, um, there's only one path. It doesn't have uh, like other dead ends and things that a maze does. It's only one path and it always leads back to the center. And so a labyrinth is supposed to uh, traditionally symbolize the spiritual journey, the journey of a soul back to the divine source. And, there's just so much to reflect on in there and in, in this idea that we shouldn't you know push away the the benefits of like engaging something really challenging physically because people have been doing that for tens of thousands of years you know this is the way that that humanity has functioned and these things have certain hidden benefits that i think you know we've largely pushed aside because we assume that well technology can replace everything that's the sad aspect of our society and our reality now, honestly. I think that I think that being in these frequency soups is not a good thing. I can I can tell when my Wi-Fi is off based on how I feel it in the air. So there's there can't no, be No, really? Can't be good, bro. That cannot be a good thing for you <laughs> to be constantly bombarded with these 
these waves and the right so at the at the end of that one of the aspects that of the sermons of the dead the interaction with with abraxas or the realization i guess of abraxas now i saw a short a clip a short on youtube the other day where they ask of young and they ask Mm. him do you believe in god i don't know if you've seen Mm -hmm. this clip and... Oh sure, yeah, it's a very famous, a notorious clip. It's it's the it's the one of the greatest failures of an interviewer in history to not ask a simple follow up question of what do you mean? <laughs> Where he one of the greatest failures. That guy should be ashamed of himself. So that that clip, so I'm sure you're aware of it. Where he's like, well, <laughs> he kind of hesitates, like, well, I I I know, right? It's like I I not do you believe? It's like you know, but I'm wondering if this came before. Or after this interaction with a with Abraxas, which is something that I've always wondered about, and it's almost like it's very alchemical because the Gnostics were obviously working with alchemy as well. Hermes Trismegistus was one of their figures, and it's like I've always wondered what Abraxas means, and he kind of labels it this right the god the god above gods type of thing, mm. and, and and I've I'm wondering if at the end of it all if what young realized or what he found and i know this is like super cliche be like oh uh, some people will say it's luciferian or satanist or whatever it's like to think that you are a god to think Mm -hmm. that you are right the god above gods and i wonder if did he find that we are like an abraxas like at the end of it all like what are your what's your interpretation of abraxas at the end like it being like this thing that he found, this essentially chimera that he found at the end of it all. And he, I know he gives a description of it all and, and all this stuff. And Basilides being one of these, he was one of, uh, one of the first Gnostics, no? One of the, these people that... He was one of the originals in Alexandria. In, yeah. And that, that's something, he, what, what's your thoughts on that? Because that's something that I've always wondered about of, you know, Abraxas, the, the concept of Abraxas. Mm-hmm. So, you know... There's Abraxas, and then there's what Abraxas means to Jung. And obviously, you can't have one without the other. But So Abraxas is, is this kind of figure that's really clothed in a lot of mystery because we don't really truly know where it originated from. We have a lot of indications like on coins and things of him existing for a while. He's definitely around in the Hellenistic time period you know, uh, post uh, Jesus and stuff and in those few hundred years. And that's where scholars kind of place him as a Hellenistic figure, potentially more ancient, but we have nothing to trace him further back. So we could uh, maybe just say for Jung, let's say, Abraxas in the context of uh, Basilides and Gnosticism, he represents a god above everything that has an influence on us in our physical reality. So in this traditional Hellenistic sense, you know, the stars, the celestial bodies, our astrological symbols, they have an influence on us, on our psychology, on who we are, on the course of our life. Then there's fate has an influence on us. Then there's the myriad gods, you know, in the celestial sphere and, and demons and such that have various influence on us. In some Gnostic Mm, traditions uh, there was a god or 
uh, a, a, not a God, sorry, a, a divine level, like a, a, an actual place for every day of the year. And as a Gnostic, you're supposed to work through every one of those levels, all 365, to eventually like ascend to the point where you're above their influence. And so Abraxas, as a god above gods, above uh, astrological influences, and you can see that on his shield, he has all the astrological symbols traditionally shown on his shield, is this god that... Um, is, is a symbolic representation of what you can become if you, to Jung, fully individuate at some point, probably toward the end of your life. So there's this uh, term individuation that is, is key in analytical psychology. And some people equate it with like self-actualization, these kinds of terms, but, but it, there's more to it. But the essence of it is that in the course of your life, if you engage with you know, your complexes, with your neuroses, with everything inside of you that's, you know, that's, that's knotted up that you have to unravel, that eventually you'll no longer have uh, contents in your unconscious that influence you because your, your, the scope of how big your conscious mind is will have expanded to include everything that you are. And by the end of your individuation or close to the end, you'll be very much like this figure of Abraxas, who is the God above gods, the God above all influence in the environment, in the celestial sphere and such. And I think uh, Jung never states this, but through reading and, and studying him, I think that's the value he saw in this kind of figure myself. Interesting. And would that put you, uh, because you know, you're talking about the upper eons and the lower eons, right? And that was essentially... How the every celestial orbit was a different dimension, and every celestial body was a different demon in this Gnostic mm. cosmology. And it's like, was he when when he says God above gods, is he higher in in your opinion? Do you think it's higher than the God, like the the source, the emanation, right? Like, what what are your thoughts? Because that that can right. get dark real quick, right? And that that has some negative connotations. In the, the Christian sense, right? And I mean, what are your sure, thoughts? Sure, sure. So when we're talking about, you know, Gnosticism, we're also, uh, you know, just th thinking in terms of the Hellenistic time period, which was also when Hermeticism was around. So when we take a look at something like Hermeticism, you know, the writings of Hermes Trismegistus, the Corpus Hermeticum, not the Kabbalion, but uh, the, the real stuff, the good stuff. Um, there they talk about, <laughs> there Hermes Trismegistus talks about various gods. He talks about gods that men can create, that humans can create, that he talks about gods that are created from statues that, you know, are imbued with uh, divine energies. And then he also talks about the God, God that is way up there, essentially out of our reach, but that still holds some kind of influence if, if even just over the spiritual realms, but not necessarily our physical plane, perhaps. And so I think in that sense, Abraxas uh, kind of equates to something more like the Demiurge, which is the god above gods that exist in this plane and influences in this plane. Um, but there's there's still a king that he has to report. <laughs> he has to, to adhere to, yeah. Yeah, report to <laughs> or be ruled under. 
yeah, that's an interesting concept. And I mean, and again, for those that don't understand the Gnostic cosmology, essentially the upper eons, right, is this more metaphysical thing where the, the, there is where you have, we have Adam and Eve, but then before them was also this perf- perfect, I guess, light being, and for lack of a better term, where it was like this, what they call the anthro, the anthropos, I think Anthrop- is what they, they Anthropos, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like this light being, and then obviously what I love about the Gnostics was that their cosmology makes the most sense to me, where at the beginning, mm. right, it was essentially consciousness. And mm. then, you know, consciousness... And then you have the the feminine figure, which is you know the 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 father thinking of. And I, there's like a whole breakdown. And then the the Christos, where it's like you know a thought of itself, thinking of itself, something something along those lines. But like this idea of consciousness kind of reproduced a counterpart, and then they got together, right? The masculine and feminine, and then they created the Christos, the son. So you have the Trinity there, and then from from there you have reality emanating outwards, where. Whatever you can perceive, you know, kind of based on what we've talked about today, whatever you're perceiving is actually an emanation of the source, of the one, mm. of the, the that Godhead that I guess we, we're all trying to strive to go up there, not become it. I guess some people would say they want to become it, but I don't, I don't believe that we can at the end of the day. I think that there is no such thing as as perfection other than God itself, right? The the The... The divine creator the the architect the the whatever he is and so that i've always wondered about abraxas where because it's very enigmatic and there's not a lot about it and even mm. the gnostics there's a lot about right. them that we don't understand and i've always wondered where that fit because it's such a weird thing to look at like if you if you look at the totally the, the rooster head and everything yeah snake right it, it, it's legs. so bizarre and it's yeah. always always interesting me and, and i want to read from the the robert flood the first section of the he's he starting again synchronistically enough he's talking about archetypes in this and mm. so this is from this is i don't even know what book it is from because it's i have the latin let me let me translate the mm-hmm. the the name real quick here so google translate good old google translate for the so latin the metaphysics of both the metaphysics of the of both the greater and lesser cosmos and now it's got a whole long name but this is by robert flood another interesting figure in history right like this mystic alchemist sort of guy but he's going mm-hmm. on, and this is the archety- archetypal microcosmic principles ideal or primary chapter one, that the primary principles of the microcosm are the same as those of the macro about spherical letters consisting of the ineffable tetragrammaton and that they are not common and dead, but fiery and alive. What are the hidden influences of the world now? Mm. Flood is one of these guys where... He had his own cosmology, he had his own thing going on. Very interesting nonetheless, but he goes, as in the description of the microcosm's origin, and I need to translate a previous section before this, previously set forth by us, its primary principles are explained to be round or spherical letters. And this is, I think, talking about the Sephiroth right, of the Tree of Life, and he has mm. his own interpretation right. of the Sephiroth. Mm. So, which we have said the father's esteem for their perfection in very few words, but clearly 
so also the same are the sub super substantial foundations of the essence and existence of the microcosm since it is the image of the world as the world itself is said to be the icon or model of the archetype in so far as it is like a most polished mirror in which the most beautiful and the most holy simulacrum of the tetragrammaton is seen now mind you this is from 16 17 that he wrote this so the the language the, the when i do the translation through chat gpt mm. i like to keep the mm. i tell it what to do i go hey keep the the most original wording as you can to really extract you mm. know but there's obviously going to be some indiscrepancies sometimes because it's an older form of a language so yeah just to keep that in sure. mind hence these both both these structures are called the sons of the tetragrammaton since they aren't Mm. They not only derive their origin from it, but also bear its truest image in so far as by the power of his word or uncreated seal in which the divine majesty is imprinted. They receive the impre impression of life and being and exist as Myro. It's like a form of, of fungi. I can't say the word or mm. sanctuaries in which they in, in which that super substantial treasure is hidden as in a most mm. prepared ark and is enclosed and segregated from the darkness or the abyss of matter. And the whole created mass is eventually illuminated, activated, vivified, and ultimately preserved by the splendor of its presence. So the way I took that almost like you receive illumination through this divine language, these letters, and I've heard before that, that the way vowels hold existence together and the reason this is interesting to me is because the gnostics had right the book of eau which were these mm. divine letters to be able to interact with these gods i guess like these other things on the other side and the whole thing of the word where we go back to the logos which is what mckenna and philip k dick they believe that the gnostics frozen time the lit the actual living word at the nagamati or the dead seas right this area that that lay dormant for god knows how long there right and that was mm. the that was the secret that they were holding that they had this knowledge that once you interacted with the with this thing it infected you and some and, and it gave you the gnosis like you you interact with it and mind you how how long after the fact that they interacted with these that they found these things that they lay, they laid untranslated and i mean a good i think mm. have they translated the whole thing i mean i don't i don't know if they have nakamadi yeah yeah definitely nakamadi the whole there's definitely a lot of other texts but that um of other traditions and alchemical texts that are um written in arabic that lay untranslated there's there's still a lot of stuff out there especially stuff that's not in latin because uh, you know uh, during a large part of the Mm, uh, 1600s 1700s 1800s a lot of those texts that were in latin were uh, more easily available to be translated by people who can read and, and speak and translate latin but then the ones that were in arabic kind of fell by the wayside because uh, uh, largely the interest in europe uh, that that's where that was to translate these things and so people were more likely to know how to do latin than, than arabic interesting yeah so I'm, again it laid dormant for a long time this was when crowley was doing some fun, funky stuff i think is when he had his 
some sort of interaction. Anyways, that's a whole other episode. These letters then containing in themselves the infinite power of the Tetragrammaton constitute that one and true ineffable name of God by which all mm -hmm. things, both macro and microcosm in the ideal world or archetype were delineated before creation. And so, mm -hmm. and, and indeed it should not be believed that these letters are of the same essence or nature as those common Hebrew letters drawn with ink or human carving. And this is, this is where it got, got interesting for me, which are indeed truly dead and artificial. But those letters were the same as those spoken in the beginning from the dark abyss and expressed in golden characters or formed from the purest fire whose presence, effect, and motion immediately emanated the world from the archetype into the spherical structure. I know that's going to piss off the flat earthers, but this is flood from the 1670s, mm. right? By whose act, according to the palmist, the heavens were established and a spirit full of fiery love was born over the waters whose influence infused all virtues virtues and especially souls first into the world and then into into its creatures of such great significance the efficacy were those formal or fiery and spherical letters of the first order yadhe vadhe as natural natural nature removed from those common and accidental letters produced in public by human invention in which no virtue is mm -hmm. inherit except in so far as they are like a stigmata or characters of art by which one man's intention may be understood by another. And yet, such is the ignorance of the common people, such such extreme blindness that they refuse to admit any letter, letters other than these alone, artificial and dead, completely ignorant that the spiritual letters, according to the apostle, are written in the innermost and central parts of the creature from whose impressions the word proceeds, and which, according to St. John the Baptist, is the life of every being. Right. And then John the Baptist being one of those guys that was, you know, he's talking about the the Rosicrucians would repeat those first verses over and over again to get into mm -hmm. these states of active imagination. And they would go into the word, into the these stories in the Bible and interact with these. Right. They, they talked about interacting with the real Jesus Christ. You know, in their mm -hmm. meditative states that they would repeat, you know, they would, the mantras. Right, right, and we can't, we can't have that. No, 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 no. Church you put a put a stop to that. You can't talk to Jesus by yourself. Yeah. you got to come to church. <laughs> exactly. It, be, it, be, it went from these Gnostics that were like, "Hey, you can achieve the the you know gnosis through us and ascend," and then it became a brokered experience where the church is like, "No, no, 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 no. You can't." How you're saying you can't? Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking of of Simpson when he's strangling Bart. You know, it's like, "What are you doing?" You know, you can't do that. So he's talking about how, yes, these letters are an invention of the human mind, but it, but it, but it doesn't fall short from something much greater. Like, like it reflects something much greater. And again, this is the first page, bro, of, of this. That, right. And this is, right. and as I was reading, I was like, wait a minute, like, this is, you know, we're, we're talking about how we're talking about at the beginning that this, this divine essence of these letters, right. And how, how, how deity is able to reflect itself even if it is a form of translation but you have a lot of guys like william s burroughs where they talked about language actually being a sort of straitjacket for man because it doesn't let you express yourself the way you want to express yourself have you ever had a concept and that you wanted to express but you couldn't find the language like 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 expressing love for your offspring 
right? You can't, there's no, you can't put that into words. It's, it's just, no, no, you gotta yeah. be there to know what it feels like. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I'm sorry, but this is uh, when I was reading this, I was like, wait, this is crazy because he's talking essentially about, you know, this, this, this essence of writing and of letters and write the tetragrammaton, mm -hmm. which birth reality into existence. That's, that's super powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so like the spirit of this kind of writing really coincides well with with what is kind of the internal spirit of alchemy and the spirit of Gnosticism and essentially the spirit of what Jung was trying to achieve with his theories in analytical psychology. And all of that is is based around this idea that it's the individual's experience and the individual's interaction with these mysteries that is the most important thing that is the way for all of humanity to advance that it's not just you know this one person saying we got to do this this religion saying this is how it's going to be done from here on it's it's the individual's experience with the mysteries and wrestling with god itself uh, and gods that basically raises all of humanity up and that's that's alchemy in a nutshell because uh, alchemy is a tradition that's not revealed through, you know, one school or one master, even though some people do go through schools. Uh, largely, it can be a tradition done completely in, in solitude. But it's revealed, the work is revealed to you through a process of revelation, through dreams, through studying the texts yourself. Gnosticism, similarly, there's, there's there must have probably been hundreds of Gnostic schools with how many survived for us to read about and document uh, because it was also very much about Gnosis. Uh, it was about the own individual's experience uh, uh, with the mysteries, with the divine. And analytical psychology, what Jung was trying to attempt basically and intuitively arrived at on his own and then found the parallels in was also the individual's own ability to engage with these things inside of them with the unconscious and have their own journey of, of enlightenment basically yeah and, and after reading this it's like a lot of these texts even the gnostic texts that was just how you mentioned earlier the tip of the iceberg right imagine mm. the world behind these symbols that right there's certainly he talks about here how these Right, Yadhe Vadhe has nature removed those from common and accidental letters produced in public by human invention. So those are the ones that stood out, right? Aside from all the other ones. So there's something to those. And again, the word, how you're saying these revelations show themselves to you. Maybe that's what synchronicities are. Maybe that's what God is when we're writing and these ideas pop up to us and kind of sort of talk to us and animate themselves. That's that's deity. That that that's that's God. Right, speaking to us in his, yes. in his own in one way. It's one way to look at it. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's. I think in terms of synchronicity, just because we didn't really talk at all about it, and and you you shared some really great ones, and I really enjoyed hearing them. In my personal experience, synchronicity seems to be tied up somehow with something to do with consciousness, and mm -hmm. something to do with the way your consciousness has engaged with the reality, where it causes things to synchronize and, and come out in these ripples that you end up seeing in your, in your environment. 
And what's bizarre in my experience is that these magical traditions, you could say, or traditions that are esoteric, the engagement with certain experiences that kind of are, are a willful engagement with uh, something like, you know, astral uh, things in the astral realm or just things uh, inside of yourself that are very ritual based. In my experience, those cause those ripples. And what's the most bizarre thing about these kind of synchronicities, oh, if you're paying attention to them, and that's one of the things, you know, magic traditions, actually one of the great things that they teach you is to pay attention to your reality because that's where you see correspondences. Um, when you notice these things, the, the ripple goes into the future, obviously after the moment where you're really synchronized with reality in, in a meaningful way. But also if you're paying attention, it goes in reverse as well. It goes into the past. So you can experience a synchronicity and then it's been proven in my experience, you do the thing that causes the synchronicity and it still travels as a ripple into the future as well. It's really bizarre. And I've never really spoken about it before, but just in my own written experiences about it, uh, I've noticed this very strange aspect. I, yeah, when I whenever I have a synchronicity or even deja vu, I take it as I'm on the right timeline. It's a breadcrumb mm. of reality telling me that something's I'm right that I'm supposed to be there. So when I, you know, and again, it, it's like how Young says you can take it for what it is, or you can just, you know, you can sort of ignore it, or you can take it and, and it can have a deeper meaning for you, right? And that's what I love about synchronicities, where it's like it can be. Right. What do headlights and tail, tailgates or what are taillights have anything to do with my reality? It's like, well, hashtag, if you know, you know. And that's why I was if there was somebody behind that glass at that office, they were probably like, the hell's wrong with this guy? And why is he taking a picture of our sign? Right, Because I'm laughing my ass off as I'm looking sure. at the sign. The person that had the cracked headlight, they weren't too happy about it. But it had significance to me. Like when I sent them the picture, I was like, they're like, oh, ha, ha. they're like, ha ha. I'm, I'm jumping with joy because. Obviously, I was there because they had had a mishap with their headlight. So, right again, so it's weird how life works that way where you can extract. I like to be positive about things usually, but I guess that's how you can also extract like significance or, or something positive, I guess, from yeah. wherever you are, you know? No, yeah. Just to riff off that as, as the idea is still fresh, like if we were to, uh, you know, catalog our synchronicities and try to figure out perhaps what is the origin point? Was there a moment where we really synchronized our consciousness with something in, in our reality in a meaningful way? In this instance, let's say with the, with the, with the taillight thing, what if the origin point was, had something to do with, with your empathy for, it was a family member or a friend you said? Family member. Yeah. Yeah. What if that, that was the origin point that caused the ripple of the synchronicity to manifest that, that something in, in that moment of empathy for them, that was, that was very authentic as a very genuine moment that was not contrived, that was not selfish, but it, it caused a little moment where just things synced and then there was a ripple. And then you ended up seeing one or two little synchronicities that, that resulted from it. Yeah. And I, almost like how he's saying, right these things will pop up and bubble up to the surface and become apparent. So you might be in a mm. synchronicity soup and you just don't know it. Cause sometimes I'm not actively looking for them, 
But yeah, when, exactly. Yeah. When those pop up where I'm literally, I, the line stops right when I'm there and I look over and I go, oh, hey, if it would have been 33% <laughs> off, I think I would have fizzled out of reality. I would have, I would have, <laughs> I would have lost, I would have lost my shit because that, that would have been crazy. And then the Elijah thing, which was really weird too. Almost oh, like man, the Elijah thing too is so good. It's like stamping. It's like, no, this is a synchrony. I'm like, oh, that was just a, a coincidence. And it's like, pfft. No, right. that stops you in your tracks to be like, okay, wait a minute. That's really, that's really right. weird. You know, how many times does yeah. it have to be a coincidence before it starts to be an emerging pattern? You know? Right, exactly. I always, I always think of it that way. Yeah. How many coincidences need to pile up before it's no longer a coincidence? And to wrap this up, MJ, I, I want to have you back on. I was, I was, yeah. I was excited to have you on. So I kind of stole the show and, and I, and I kind of steered it in some other directions. I had a lot of, a lot of no, questions right? and I was excited, but to, to finish off like in the, the Abraxas sort of elevation of your consciousness or whatever it is, defining that true self. I, I believe that, right. You have Zosimos of Panopolis, one of these ancient alchemists. The first alchemist, which we have writings of was also writing about the book of Enoch. And the reason that Enoch mm. is interesting, maybe not in the first Enoch, but second and third Enoch, and apparently there's a fourth Enoch too, which I, I learned the other day. The At the end of third Enoch, after he's shown all of this knowledge, right, of the watchers and these angels and these upper and in, in heaven, this upper eons or, or the this other realm, this other dimension, at the end of it all, he becomes Metatron. Right. And I think hmm. what is interesting about that is that I believe it shows where perhaps this knowledge can take one. And maybe perhaps the, the church knew that. And these alchemists and all these hermeticists and all these different esoteric orders had some sort of knowledge about that. Where once you revealed the secrets, because remember, the watchers is where alchemy came from if you if you followed the story right they passed it down to the daughters of men and from there right we have the bloodlines of noah chem and all these different right early alchemists so alchemy has like a sort of divine origin right because essentially yeah, it's totally. about manipulating and stepping outside of space and time if, if, you, if you believe that mumbo jumbo but i i believe that's why they they took enoch out of the canon because it was too powerful and it revealed like, hey, once you learn the secret to the secret and you interact with the, the divine, maybe not perhaps God himself, but the divine, these watchers that are learning from the divine alchemist, you become the lesser Yahweh. You become the little Yahweh. You become this thing that sits next to the throne of the Godhead. And it's like it was through all the stuff that he learned that it just fizzled him out of reality and he became this overseer this angel right he became this light being mm. and it, they say that that was the the angel that stopped right abraham from killing i forget the, the son's name but you know that whole story of sacrificing your first son and all that but i just find that interesting and i've always thought about that because mm. right also the 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 33rd chapter of the book of enoch talks about the the opening at the North Pole, right? The 33rd chapter, right? This is ascension mm. point where you're able to go to. And again, it's a whole different episode, but I just find it interesting that one of the first alchemists was almost obsessed with with reading and writing about 
these watchers and entities that were interacting with man uh, anti mm. antediluvian man i guess is what you can uh, call it but yeah i don't know what you think about that maybe that's what young figured out at the end of it all where it's like yeah once you learn the secrets of the secrets maybe you don't have to read all this mumbo jumbo you can just look within yourself and you're able to extract forth that essence i don't know maybe and maybe i wonder if if young if he would have learned about other cosmologies because i know he was really into the greek stuff if he learned about other cosmologies and other religions if if these entities that he was interacting with would have morphed into entities pertaining to that religious cosmology or that culture or that you know region like maybe if he interacted with mesopotamian stuff maybe these entities would have been the anunnaki right so how our environment influences these archetypes and these symbols that we're seeing you know what i'm you know what i mean mm -hmm. so i don't know we're never going to find True. out but yeah. just something interesting oh, totally. to think about yeah. yeah 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 um we definitely have to bookend it with something but yeah the <clears throat> I love all the things you said, and um, I would talk about it for another hour. But <laughs> it's gonna leave me with some things, things to think about too, <laughs> with, the, with the book of Enoch stuff. I gotta crack that open and start reading some of that too. Thank you for that. Yeah, I always like to leave a little cliffhanger to to leave the people wanting more. So maybe maybe we can talk about that on our next Absolutely. get together. But MJ, I really enjoyed this. I had a lot of fun today. Can you tell the people where they can find you one more time, where they can look up your podcast, YouTube channel, whatever you want to let the people know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, just head over to Spotify. My podcast is Creative Codex, C-O-D-E-X. And uh, we just released a four-part series about Jung and alchemy that I'm sure your listeners will enjoy. Otherwise, I'm on Instagram at MJ Dorian, D-O-R-I-A-N. And look forward to meeting some of uh, your great listeners on this community you got. And again, it's, it's a pleasure. I really had fun. Thank you, Juan. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being here. And uh, make sure, right, follow the show on social media at the Juan and Juan podcast, tjojp.com. Call in 407-476-4606. I've gotten a lot of interesting messages. I'll be doing an episode soon with those. And as always, everyone... Thank you for being here and catch you on the other side or see you on the other side. Bye-bye.